Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. Most members of Congress don't begin as members of Congress. They start in their hometowns with campaigns for the city council or a county board post or the school board. House Democratic Caucus Vice Chair Catherine Clark came up that way, beginning with a bid for the Melrose, Massachusetts School Committee in 2001. Her service on the committee continues to guide her activism on behalf of education, just as her service as a state legislator in Massachusetts informs her fierce commitment to maintaining a system of checks and balances in Washington, a commitment that led her to become the first member of the House Democratic leadership to call for an impeachment inquiry. But what has distinguished Clark throughout her career has been something else, a determination to speak up for the interests of women in workplaces, in communities, on the internet, and in Congress. An outspoken feminist, she has said for years that framing campaigns around the interests and needs of women is smart politics and smart policy. She has had to argue with a few political consultants along the way, but as a new generation of young women enter the Congress and make their mark, Clark is enthusiastic about amplifying their voices and about recruiting women to run in 2020. Congresswoman Catherine Clark, thanks so much for joining us on uh, Next Left. I am thrilled to be with you, John. Thanks for having me. Well, it is a pleasure. And I'm especially interested in talking to you because you got started in politics in the way a lot of, of people get started. And that is at the very local level. Almost 20 years ago, you ran for the Melrose School Committee which is for people who aren't in Massachusetts, the equivalent of a school board. That's right. What drew you into school politics? Well, you know, I had just moved to um, my hometown of Melrose, Massachusetts. I was working as general counsel for the Office of Child Care Services, really trying to connect kids to the best early education experience they could have. And for low and moderate income parents, making sure that they could access safe educational quality environments for their children while they were at work. And what we were seeing at that time in Massachusetts were dramatic cuts to our schools, to childcare benefits, and there were, you know, eight people running for nine open seats on the Melrose School Committee, which seemed like a great race uh, to get involved in. <laughs> and I really wanted to see how we could bring some of the policies that we had been talking about at work in the educational communities about a great start for kids to Melrose schools. And I thought it was also a great way to get involved in a new community. And it was certainly an easy entry into a campaign where you were guaranteed a spot on the school committee. And I want to sort of flash forward because you've ended, you ended up in Congress and your school experience came into play in one of the, the high profile things you did as a member of Congress. And that was to challenge Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos on vouchers and particularly on vouchers going to schools that discriminate against LGBTQ students. Let me me make this as simple as possible. Where federal dollars are going to private schools through voucher or choice programs, 
will you guarantee as Secretary of Education that that money is included with non-discrimination policies for those private schools. As I said, federal dollars... Is that a yes or a no? Federal dollars going to pro any program requires... So what is your interpretation of federal I law? I've, I think I've made this clear. Then just say yes or no. Federal dollars going anywhere for education, federal laws are adhered to. So... So you would not be able to send federal dollars to a private school that did not adhere to the full panoply of civil rights laws in this country. Federal law must be Is that a followed. yes or no? Just say yes or no. Involved. Yes or no. Federal law must be followed when federal money is involved. So is there some problem? Yes or no? Will you guarantee? I, I, think, I think I've been clear. Then be, say yes or no. Yes. Okay. Great, thank you. Whoa, wow, <laughs> took a year. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think that it is one of the great freedoms of being a member of Congress who I, I never saw myself here. This was, I got into the school committee race because I wanted to contribute. I wanted to make sure that we were giving each kid a great start. And there was an ongoing debate at that time in Massachusetts about full-day kindergarten. Who was going to pay for it? Were we going to step up and pay for it as a state? Or is this going to be a burden carried by families? And what difference did it make? And I felt so strongly that we know that early education is the critical time period for kids. And that if we have them reading at grade level by third grade, that's a game changer. So fast forward to being in a hearing with Betsy DeVos and have her be unwilling to stand up and simply say, I'm not going to allow federal dollars to go to schools that discriminate was beyond galling. It just really was one of those experiences where somebody had to say no to her and to put her on record on whose side she was going to stand on. And it certainly struck me as that wasn't on the side of kids and equality. Well, I was also struck by here you are bringing your experience to the fore, right? And it always struck me that Betsy DeVos, she never served on a school board. She hadn't been a teacher or really all that engaged with public schools. And here she is, Secretary of Education, being questioned by someone who had done the, you know, the late nights at school committee meetings. And so in watching that, it seemed as if that experience gave you a confidence in going into a clash with a member of the cabinet. For me, running for Congress was really about trying to be that voice for women and children, trying to take the work from a local school committee where, you know, there's no working through a grocery store when you sit on a local school board uh, without getting stopped by parents because you are dealing with the thing that is most central to their lives, and that's their children and what they are experiencing. And trying to pull those threads together and coming to Congress in a special election where I knew I was going to be the most junior member of the minority party. Uh, you know, I think 
coming here not to be someone, but to do something sort of gives you that ability to look at a Betsy DeVos and say, you're wrong. And we're going to be a voice for those who don't often get a voice at the table here in Congress. And that's kids. And that's women. And that's a lot of other people who get left out of the system here on Capitol Hill. And that's something that I have tried to do. And never having pictured yourself here, I think it gives you a little extra courage and independence to take on players like Betsy DeVos, who are very wealthy. And I don't begrudge her her wealth, but she has to see where people are. And I just never get the feeling that she's fighting for children. And when you come from that perspective, it's um, easier to take on the powers that be. So let's let's color in some of the the, the picture here because uh, it wasn't just a leap from the school committee to Congress. You clearly wanted to get more engaged with politics, and you kind of climbed that ladder, running for starting campaign. Sometimes stuck him back as other candidates you know, sort of reverse their their plans, but eventually making a run for the state house, then the state senate, and. And that drew you out of that that world of the the school committee into this, you know, kind of deeper political world. And the state legislative experience was a big deal for you because you you did serve for a, a substantial amount of time in the Massachusetts legislature, as you say, chairing committees uh, in a very contentious legislature. So when you got to Congress, you weren't necessarily at, at that point, you were not inexperienced with uh, the dynamics that at least some of the dynamics that you were going to confront. That's right. I think a lot for new members of Congress that I see coming in who haven't had experience in their state legislature, they're often surprised at the pace. And I certainly was familiar with how how Congress can move very, very slowly, sort of interspersed with uh, adrenaline-filled weeks where we move very quickly on different items. And so that part of it I was used to. There's a whole uh, different set of challenges in Congress. There is, you know, the partisan divide really flipped for me coming from a state where the Democrats hold um, the majority in the state house and have held that for for a long time, even though we tend to change governors more frequently, uh, really coming in where the, the partisan politics went to a different level. And when I came in, I tried to find the ways that I could reach across the aisle, even though we may feel very differently on 98% of the topics. What was that 2%? And for me, that was around the opioid crisis and finding partners across the aisle who had states that were as brutally devastated by this crisis as my families at home in Massachusetts are. And we're able to knit together those relationships. And the first bill that I passed dealing with babies who had been exposed to opioids, actually, my my lead sponsor was Mitch McConnell. And uh, I wish that he would 
work with me again on so many other bills. But um, but it was it was a start. And it was a way to try and get things done. And I think that was the experience of having been in a legislative body, and being able to to go over and find those issues that we could work on, however far and few between they are. So you were sitting in the legislature, and as you said, you made the case against a Clark for Congress campaign. Yeah. Uh, and then Ed Markey got elected to the U.S. Senate, and you found yourself in a in a position where this very Democratic seat was open. So the key on that race was going to be your primary. And you were in there with a number of other candidates. It was a competitive race. But you early on had support from Emily's list, if I'm correct. And we always, I think people always hear about Emily's list, but it struck me in in looking at your special election race back in, I think it's 2013, if I'm right, that there was a case where having support from Emily's list and from some prominent women was very, very helpful and in sort of you know, breaking through some of the old political patterns. I, I think that's right. What I found uh, looking back on it is that in 2013, during the special election, I was one of the few congressional candidates that had primarily female donors. And that is in, in some part due to Emily's List. And the Emily's List endorsement was in part due to the encouragement from these supporters that I had that were also supporters of Emily's List. And I've really tried to help women candidates tap into their own networks and help work with women to say, you have not only a vote, not only the ability to work on races, but that you too can be a contributor, even if it's a small amount, it makes a difference. And I think My campaign was focused on women. It was focused around the issue of pay equity. Uh, Many people thought that we weren't going to be successful. Uh, We had many volunteers saying, you've got to expand your message. But we knew what we were about. And we were proven right that when you're willing to stand and fight for something, people understand you're going to fight for them in Congress. I really, really like the way you're you're talking about this because there is so frequently a, a tendency of, of political consultants and, and even perhaps well-meaning folks to say, oh, you've got to you've got to have a message that sort of touches every base or that kind of gets a little bit vague in the sense. And I think what you're saying is if you focus tightly on issues that really excite you and that that animate a lot of your constituency, perhaps as well, that works. And and you don't necessarily have to run a cookie cutter campaign that tries to touch every base. Sometimes if you focus strongly on something you're passionate about, people will get it that you're passionate about that. And frankly, a lot of other things. That's exactly it. You know, I think what people saw in my race was that there is, you know, this elusive authenticity quality, you know, we look for and analyze a lot. But it really does come down to, you know, where's your heart? Where is your passion? Where are you going to put your efforts? But my advice to candidates that I've worked with, and what certainly has worked for me, is be yourself, follow your passion. These are hard jobs. Campaigns are hard. Political life is hard. So it's got to be something that you feel 
is worth putting this time and effort into. And there's lots of people who could do a good job in these seats, but what is it that you're going to focus on? And for me, a lot of that is, who are we going to invite to the table of power? And, you know, as a woman, I think that we have to make way not only for other women, but to also look at particularly people of color. And as a white woman, what is our role in history? And what is our obligation now um, as a as a committed feminist to making sure that we are more inclusive and that we are bringing those voices to the table? And I think it is seeing the issues through that lens helps to build not only a good campaign, but I hope a better legislative process for the country where more people have a seat at that table and that we are actively working to encourage that their voices be heard and amplified. We'll be back after these messages. Join me on the nation cruise to the Western Caribbean this December 8th through the 15th, sailing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with ports of call in the Bahamas, Jamaica, Grand Cayman, and Mexico. I'll be joined by Ijin Poo, Joan Walsh, Ben Jealous, Zephyr Teachout, and many other progressive thinkers, leaders, and heroes. Together, we'll explore our turbulent political landscape and debate what can be done about challenges facing the United States and the world. We'll do it all amid the natural beauty of the Western Caribbean. This trip will sell out fast. Secure your spot at www.nationcruise.com. I hope to see you on board. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Congressmember Catherine Clark, representing the Massachusetts 5th District. And you've been willing to take some political risks based on on your values and and on your commitments, particularly in the areas we've just been talking about. When you were, after you'd been a little over a term in Congress, Donald Trump gets elected president of the United States. And there's a lot of questions about how to respond to that. You were one of the first people to speak up and say that you were not going to participate in the inaugural. At the point you were speaking up, not everybody was. What happened there? Why did you choose to step out front on that? You know, I saw with Donald Trump, his election was devastating. I thought that the election was going to be close. But to see someone who bragged about sexual assault, who was demonizing immigrants in his campaign, was so demeaning to women it just the idea that he would be president so transcended, you know, a partisan fight and values. I was so worried. And I also thought that, as he said on election night, that maybe he would moderate that sort of the weight of this responsibility to this country, the power of the office he had just been elected to would cause him to to rise to the occasion. But as we saw him putting together his cabinet, bringing in Steve Bannon, bringing in Steve Miller, I realized that he was going to lead with the same chaos and hatred and narcissism 
that we had seen in the campaign. And I did not want any of my constituents to see my presence at that inauguration in any way to say, this is normal. This is just another president, maybe not the president I voted for, because the warning signs were there. And the Women's March was such an inspiring day to me to see just those waves of pink hats and women's, you know, just coming from every walk of life to be part of saying women are watching, we're here, we're not going to go away, we're not going to hide, we're going to stand our ground, we're going to find candidates, we're going to run for office, and we're going to make sure that our democracy is protected. And that is how I got into doing the work of recruiting and co-chairing the Red to Blue campaign for the Democrats in the midterms. Just being able to go out, find these candidates who had been inspired to serve their country. Uh, Many of them did not come up in the path that I had. They were called to service um, by these times and by what was happening with this president. And uh, it's been remarkable privilege to be able to help them, encourage them, act as part uh, mentor, part therapist, part campaign consultant, and now to see so many of them and so many women walking around on the House floor every day, it, it is still a thrill to see them as members of Congress. It, it must be exciting for you as someone who's identified for a very long time as a feminist to see so many young women joining these committees, often with a push from the Congressional Progressive Caucus that you're a member of to make sure that committee assignments are well distributed and just knocking it out of the park, becoming stars in a sense because of their incredibly skilled questioning and and challenging of, of powerful folks. I think of you know Katie Porter or AOC on some of, in, in just this committee work. It really is a a confirmation of a lot that you've worked on for a very long time. Exactly. I mean, it really doesn't get old. To see Katie Porter with her vast knowledge around financial services uh, be completely disarming in her, you know, wonderful, friendly manner, but she gets right to the point. And she can really level a witness who is not prepared uh, for her level of knowledge and her commitment to consumers and to doing what is right by them. I've looked at and admired Veronica Escobar, one of our freshman women who represents El Paso community. She has just been a, a leader, this voice on immigration and this horrific inhumane policies around separating children. And not only has she been a leader, but she has led so many members of Congress to the border, exposed them to what is happening at the border and to the whole nonprofit network that is also working on these issues. And then to see her leadership in August when the horrific shooting happened at the Walmart in her community, and once again, sort of turning to using her leadership style as a freshman in Congress to help rebuild a community and to continue to lead with 
understanding and compassion and love while still being a firebrand. It is it is just so inspiring to see these women grow into these roles as Congresswomen and use all the skills they have to bring us to a new level in Congress and to bring that sort of leadership that is unique to them. It's an incredibly talented caucus and to be able to be a small role in enabling their voices to get to Congress and then making sure that they are being loudly heard. When you speak like that, you you sound like a classic leader and you are in leadership. Often one of the criticisms of leadership is that that people who come into these positions for whatever reason tend to take a step back from some of the most contentious debates. And In your case, however, you stepped up and became, I think, the first member of leadership to speak out in favor of impeachment of the president. What made you decide to to take that jump to make that move? It really was listening to Bob Mueller's testimony and hearing him say that as he was speaking, Russia and other foreign countries, foreign adversaries, We're working to influence our 2020 elections. And on the same day, to have Mitch McConnell say he would not bring up for a vote a bill that would enable states to be able to protect their election systems. Nothing could be more fundamental to our democracy than saying our election systems should be free from foreign interference. And when those two sort of issues collided for me on that day, uh, you know, I felt like it was time that we use every tool that we have. And officially opening an impeachment investigation is not presupposing the outcome, but it does give us tools that are helpful to breaking through um, the barriers that this administration has put up. These are startling facts that came out because we were able to open an impeachment inquiry and have some of those tools like counsel being able to question these witnesses. And that for me was was the breaking point where I said we have to use every tool that we have. And I think our our committees have been very serious and with a sense of urgency of moving forward. Uh, But we have been stonewalled by this administration, and our goal is to get the facts out to the American people, to get to the truth of what not only has happened with Russia, with the obstruction by this president into that investigation, but what has happened with his personal enrichment. What has happened with using his hotels, rerouting military planes so that the personnel stays at his golf courses, having foreign countries stay at Trump hotels trying to curry favor? What is it? What is the bottom of the hush payments that he made to different women who he had affairs with? All of these questions need to be answered. And I think that we have to use every tool that we have to get to the facts, to break through the barriers that this administration is desperate to erect so that we don't get this information out about what is really happening to our democracy with this administration. 
We've talked about a lot of aspects of your career and about serving in Congress. So often we ask about cultural connections and, and some, often music. But there was a, a fascinating thing from one of your statement, from one of your early interviews uh, when you came to Congress. And that was you said that serving in Congress really was like House of Cards, but without the murders. <laughs> um, <laughs> It, it, that was a few years ago when you were just coming in. Do you still see it that way? <laughs> I think I've changed a little bit. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I think that there are definitely, uh, in Congress, there are always things going on at many different levels. Um, but I think what I have come to appreciate is that so many people come to Congress with a real commitment to serving their communities. And, you know, what I am hoping to do is help them do that. And, you know, it's it's not always possible. I've been thinking about sort of, you know, what victories we've had and, and what defeats we've had. And one of those that really speaks to me, because I think it encompasses both, was the sit-in with John Lewis a few years ago. We never got the vote that we wanted on universal background checks from, I should be clear, from the from the Republicans at that time. But we sparked a conversation with the American people. And I think what the American people saw in that sit-in was that we saw them and we understood the fear in their lives that so many communities face daily from gun violence. We understood what it was like to have your loved one come back from war seemingly whole but having those hidden wounds that end up with them taking their own lives. We've seen the the victims of mass shootings and not only those who lost their loved ones and lost their lives, but all the other trauma that is inflicted on communities, the multiple surgeries people have, you know, and just that trauma of a community where taking part in something so daily, so fundamental, something so ordinary, like going to a movie theater, being in a place of worship, being at a garlic festival and uh, enjoying a, a street fair turn into a bloody massacre, uh, you know, almost instantly. And I think that it is part of being part of Congress, trying to use those levers, use our formal processes when we can, but also not being afraid to say, we've got to do something differently. And sometimes that means actually sitting down on the floor of the House. And while we didn't get the Republicans to bring up a vote then, we sparked something that was really continued by the students from Parkland who changed voters' minds and put gun violence and making sure that we find ways to keep communities safe at the top of the agenda. And 
we've elected an incredible class of new members of Congress who don't run from this issue, but understand how, how important it is to people at home. And we were able to finally pass that legislation. And we're going to keep the pressure on the Senate and Mitch McConnell to listen to the American people to respond to this public health crisis. But I think it's a good example of you might not be able to win immediately, but you've got to play a longer term game too and make the investments in, if you can't find those in Congress who are willing to fight for change, then you change Congress to make sure that they have a voice for American people. Well, Congresswoman Clark, I I have very little doubt that you will keep the pressure on and that you will change Congress. I, I really want to thank you so much for joining us uh, this week on Next Left. You've you've really given us a, a very good sense of, of what it uh, means to go from the Melrose School Committee all the way to uh, trying to impeach a president or at least opening up the discussion. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you, John. Join us next week as we take the next left with Councilman Khalid of South Fulton, Georgia. We'll discuss what it's like to be a socialist, a trade unionist, and an activist with Black Lives Matter serving on a city council in the South. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia steiner Evoy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. Recording help this week from Jim Michael Burris. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. 